0: Bitches, I am so bored. And I did this to myself because what had happened was is that before um, April started to distract myself from working on Darkly Lowell, I started working on that Stargate series that I was super enamored with. And then I got really, really invested in writing it, and I had to stop and work on Darkly Lowell. And I did my 25k for the month. Um... So I I met my goal and I'm only like 3 chapters off finishing that story to begin with. Um it, and, and I can't write anything now. I'm just I'm not a blah. I got nothing. Anyways, um tonight we're going to be talking about um characters and um and uh Kiki asks one of the things I really admire in your fiction is your ability to deal with issues of ethics and morality without ever feeling like you're on a soapbox. Do you ever find it difficult to walk that line? I particularly enjoy this in HP fix since JK Rowling's wizarding world has so many complicated, completely screwed up legal and ethical situations um, happening. Do you have a particular character you feel is well suited to delivering verbal smackdowns of that sort to people? Um, Julie's on the phone to talk with me tonight um, to be my buffer when um, the coughing gets too bad and to um, impart her wisdom on this question. And I'll get her on the line in a minute. Lady Holder's off having a life. I know. For fuck's sake. She's out gallivanting around her place of origin-ish. I'm going to tell you about my mama before we get started. My mama. I, um sent her a package for her birthday I sent it through Amazon and um, I forgot to tell her (laughs) that she was getting a package from me through Amazon right Um, and uh, when I asked her uh, what age she was gonna start claiming after this last birthday she um, she said she's still pursuing her 60s yes so she's gonna be 60-ish for quite a while now for for quite a while Um, anyways my mother her birthday. Um, she had mentioned in passing about five or six months ago that she wanted a Brita pitcher for her refrigerator because um, her water um, from the tap tastes like crap and she's started buying bottled water. So I went on Amazon and I bought her one. I, I bought her a Brita a Brita pitcher for her refrigerator. Because um, she has a habit of buying um, things that entertain herself. So it's kind of hard to... Um, <clears throat> Pardon me Buy her things That she'll enjoy because she's already bought it for herself So I, I tend to buy her practical things um, And um, so I brought her uh, I bought her a a Brita picture And sent it to her through um, Amazon um, And uh, so I call her and I I I realized it had been delivered. So I called her, and I asked her about it, and um, I asked her if it had been um, delivered, and she said, yes, did did you send that to me? And I was like, yeah, did you open it? She says, yeah, I already opened it and washed it and put water in it and put it in my refrigerator. And I'm like, well, what if it wasn't for you? What, What if it had been for me, for my house, and it got accidentally sent to you? Or what if Amazon had sent it to you by accident? You didn't even know. And she was like, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) (coughs)
1: That's
0: a good thing it was for her since the moment it entered her hot little hands, it was not leaving. (sighs) I don't care. Anyways, back to the question. Um and yes, she is enjoying her Brita picture. I got her a purple one. She's she's really pleased with it. Yes, if it comes to her house, it belongs to her. Um she's she's pretty funny. <clears throat> um what I would say is that um thank you for thinking I do this well. Um I have plenty of people who contact me. Um who would say that I don't do that well So I appreciate your um, your perspective on that um, I have been accused of, of writing characters That are very arrogant um, And um, so Yeah well. <clears throat> There we go anyways i'm put Julie on the phone and we're going to talk about this because this is really funny because we had talked about this before she and i um this particular subject and how um people approach it um and uh i like to approach my characters um in in these moments from a moral high ground um kind of gives them a little bit more freedom to say whatever the hell they want to say or whatever i want them to say really uh so we're going to we're going to get started Hello. She's got me on mute. That's I what did have is. you on mute. I did have on mute.
1: Uh-uh, <clears throat> uh-uh, uh-uh,
2: on the soapbox. Okay.
1: I personally love getting on a soapbox. Okay. <sighs> I personally yeah, love getting on a soapbox.
2: Sometimes a just soapbox is very um, emotionally satisfying, but you've got to earn it. You know, you can't just have a character who's moralizing all the time. It's really annoying. You know, you've got you to gotta have that moment that sort of justifies somebody getting up on that soapbox and
0: letting somebody have it just all out. Yeah, but what I would also say is that while the line between, um, say, the moral high ground and an outright soapbox would be um, the moral high ground and abuse. Because it is one thing to put your character in a position of strength and let them speak the truth. Um, It is another to put them in a position of strength and... Turn them in such a way that their language and their behavior becomes abusive. That probably sounds really funny lot. coming out of my mouth after Law when I killed everybody, but I still don't think that that actually—that's <laughs> different. That's like dark comedy. That's a big difference. Um, but I have encountered scenes in stories, and no, I'm not going to name them, where I became deeply uncomfortable. Um, with the way it was being written, because the so called bad guy was suddenly being victimized in a mm-hmm. very horrific manner and one one particular story just sticks out in my brain, and the moment i saw i mean the moment that I hit that scene, I stopped reading. I could not read any more of that story because it turned the main character. From a hero to someone who gleefully abuses and physically bullies other people. Mm-hmm. And I was just I, like, I actually,
2: I, "Oh, I think Harry. I think Harry Potter is the worst
0: fandom for
2: um, that wild swing um, where the pendulum swings too far the other direction, where people are trying to make Harry independent or strong, and he comes out as an asshole." Or he's <laughs> supposed to be the hand of justice, and he winds up being the hand of abuse. Um, and, yeah, Darkly Loyal is a really different situation. Cause you call it dark comedy, but it really is more of a reckoning than it is um, an abuse, you know? And these people brought that on themselves, I mean, and they're not torturing them, right? They're killing them. And it's just a bunch of – it's a series of assassinations, some more efficient than others. You know, volcanoes are slightly more efficient than the Nundu Preserve.
0: But there, but there, but I did make creative decisions in *Darkly Lowell, um to negate situations where I felt the line could be crossed between um, power and weakness and strength and abuse. Um, for instance, the situation with, with Jenny Weasley. I think plenty of my readers would have been perfectly fine if Harry had hunted her down in that moment when she killed Hedwig and cut her head off. But she's a fifteen-year-old girl who's been manipulated mm-hmm. by her mother and Dumbledore, and I could not take Harry there. But later on, I had no problem throwing a her volcano, which is entirely—it's just—it's different. Yeah, uh, you have to. This is—you <clears throat> have to have the
2: things have to be proportional. You know, the response has to be proportional to the offense. Um, And, you know, I I read a a Harry Potter story, again, I won't won't get too specific, but Harry's treatment of Voldemort was so egregious that Voldemort was a sympathetic character by the end.
0: And that's saying something. Yeah, it
2: really is. I mean, and Harry had so crossed the line in his treatment of Voldemort and Death Eaters that, um, and it, you know, and it was, it was, it was. I think it was, it was framed as an independent Harry story, um, and he had so crossed the line that he was sort of loathsome, and I felt kind of nauseated by the end. And I do think, I mean, the the, the question, the person who asked the question, um, makes a really valid um, point that you, I think we do see these wild swings in Harry Potter, um, and we see a lot of this in the Harry Potter fandom. For good and for bad, because there is so much fundamental injustice in what we see in the canon um, that 's never really addressed if it was addressed in the canon in a satisfying way, we wouldn't be running around you know uh, trying to figure out a way to, to to deal with it differently but it's not it 's not addressed in any kind of meaningful or, or you know viscerally satisfying way in canon all these injustices and horrible things that happen that um you know, there's there's an inclination to, to want to, to go and fix that stuff or to to write a reimagining matter or, or to, you know, have some character be the hand of justice kind of thing. But there's a difference between, you know, um, justice or the reckoning or whatever you want to call it, or even just giving somebody, you know, having to come to Jesus meeting. There's a difference between that and swinging the character so far outside of their own um, characterization, that they become what they're fighting against.
0: And if you want to do that, do that, but you need to own it. Yeah. And you don't need to pretend you're not doing it.
2: Right. So call it evil Harry, not independent Harry, right? I mean, call it what it is.
1: And.
0: Harry Potter is a very good example of this, actually. I mean, it's because um, when I put Harry in a position to lecture the adults around him, um, I put him in a position of moral superiority, where he can point out something that they do that is heinous, and say, you know what, This this is unacceptable behavior. Don't you realize how ugly it is? Don't you understand how horrible you're being? And it makes it easier to justify um, his behavior if you put him in that position. But you also need to, with a character, no matter who the character is, is you need to moderate their language. One of the most offensive things I've seen recently is... um, Seeing a character, um, who is quite strong in canon, um, verbally abusing somebody else, um, once they gained a position of power. And I... I, (sighs) It really put me off, and I was like, oh, God, that, that's – but that's the author's decision, of course, and, of course, that's their decision. They can do what they want with their fic, but I had to close it because I was done. I was like, whoop, done. <laughs> I can't I can't handle it because there needs to be um, – you can't put your character on the on the moral high ground of a situation and then turn around and have them abuse an, another character. And,
1: right.
0: And, um they-
2: Otherwise, you wind up into a situation of hypocrisy. You go from the moral high ground to hypocrite, and um, that is a, isn't a comfortable position for most people. Um, now, we 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 were talking a little bit about the concept of idfic this week, um, which I I've always called them mean, guilty you know pleasure fix. Yeah, I, 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 no I I'd always call was. them guilty pleasure fix. Um, but apparently, the the the, the name is uh, id fix. Which is the the stuff that has tropes you know are awful or or um, plot devices that 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 you know you know shouldn't work or the stuff you love to read that you know is kind of garbage <laughs> is the way it's explained actually on fan lore is what an id fic is and then the, and the point of it is that it's appealing to your id and um, a lot of I think a lot of these um, these stories where Harry swings too far are people really getting too much into their id and not thinking about um, the the ramifications of making Harry um, that lose the moral high ground because if you if you give him the moral high ground and then you take it away from him you ruined your premise but that that part of us that wants you know we we, that wants harry to lash out at everybody um is can can be really satisfied by that kind of that kind of dynamic in a story it's just a lot of times people go too far and then all of a sudden you're going
0: now wait a minute
2: (laughs) that's not being a guilty pleasure and now i just feel guilty (laughs)
0: Um, a perfect example of that for those of you who, um, who are reading Darkly Lowell, it would be like me killing, Harry killing, <laughs> Harry killing somebody who is outside the parameters that he set for himself. Um, Like if he were suddenly to kill Neville Longbottom for absolutely no reason. Or he kills Flitwick or he kills sprout or he kills um just Hagrid. i mean just somebody completely off the the grid as far as um the the plot story goes um and that would derail his characterization and it would derail the plot and of course i wouldn't actually do that because i got i'm, I'm not that writer <clears throat> but it um it removes his moral high ground, is, it, is what it does. And if somebody can have a moral high ground Dr. law <laughs> Yeah. Well, Harry Harry does
2: kind of have the moral high ground. I mean, he's been being killed over and over and over again. So, I, I, I don't, you know, if someone killed me over and over again, I, I'd feel a little morally superior. <laughs> I'd be a little pissed.
0: If it yeah. only happens once, you know, once or twice, I'd be pissed. But, you know, in terms of, there's,
2: there's something to be considered um, when you are doing, um, when you're kind of doing this kind of moment where you want to have a reckoning happen. That's kind of the way I tend to think of them, these moments of reckoning, where um, they call it a verbal smackdown. I actually, it's not, smackdown's not, my, not typically my favorite um, term, but we'll go with it. I know it's uh, used a lot. So when you, the, the, the character's position on the high ground um, kind of determines for me about how I can approach that. Harry Potter typically has the moral high ground, um,
0: even in canon. <laughs> yeah, especially especially canon, and he would be like, "Okay, yeah, you're right, Harry. That was." <laughs> so Harry, Harry
2: actually is almost a natural to slip into that role um, of of delivering that moment. Of having that conversation, where it giving somebody you know the wake up call that they richly deserve, because he does have the moral high ground usually. Now, and, and this is just this is just my opinion, but like so let's we switch that to NCIS. I don't, I almost never do that with Tony because Tony rarely has the moral high ground. I'm not saying he's not ever wronged, but he's so participatory in his own misery that. Um so when Tony as opposed to Tony just getting fed up and saying, you know, this is you know so so again this this is totally every everybody has different tolerances for this kind of thing. But um and everybody has different things they like. Tony going up on his high horse almost never works for me. Because he, unless it's like the first six months he's at NCIS, he has contributed to the situation that he's in. So he has no moral high ground. So if I'm going to have somebody go up on a soapbox and try not to have it feel like a soapbox, it's going to have to come from somebody outside, somebody other than Tony. If Tony's going to have an eruption, it's usually going to be due to temper, being pushed too far and lashing out is the way I tend to approach those moments of reckoning, and they're always private. Because Tony's a grown man who doesn't have temper tantrums. You know, that's my headcanon that. for him. I
1: hate that. So when Tony is the...
2: pushed Go ahead. When Tony's pushed to his limits, his, that moment of reckoning happens as a matter of temper. And it's more, not so much I am at the moral high ground, but as a, I am set up, and you have contributed to it, and you are in my face, and you're going to have to listen to me now. And he never. It, I don't think in any any argument I've ever had him have with whoever has or had that moment that blow up. I don't think I've ever had him absolve himself of blame. But so it's a very different moment than somebody just giving somebody you know, um, whereas because he doesn't have the moral high ground, so it's very framed very differently. If and because and and to address part of the question about the particular characters particularly well suited to delivering that. Kind of thing. Like I said, it would in the case of NCIS. That for me has to happen in private if Tony's going to do it. But in terms of a character in the canon who is well suited to taking the moral high ground and delivering the kind of reckoning, kind of conversation, um, Dwayne Pride in in NCIS would probably be my choice um, in the NCIS universe for who. Mm, mine too. Floats on the moral high ground. Is that man getting sexier by the by the year, or is that just me? He is.
0: What the fuck? <laughs> Like, for those of you who watched this, is totally off-topic, who watched Grimm, um, Sasha... How do you say his last name? I think it's pronounced Roaz. Roaz? The guy who played, Roes, the, <laughs> the captain, right? Okay, so the first yeah, season Sean of Grimm... Re- Sean Renard. He, He's good-looking. Sean Renard is good-looking. Somewhere around the middle of season two, he got hot as fuck, and then it just, like, became an inferno. I don't even know what it was. It was, like, season one, I was like, ah. Eh, okay he's you know, he's good looking and then by, somewhere in the middle I don't know what happened in season 2 but something happened in season 2 and he turned into I know, a beast like, what the de- what's the deal dude <laughs> did you get married did you get divorced what happened are you getting laid
2: more what's happening
0: <clears throat> it was I don't even know I don't even know what happened. But yeah, um, Scott Bakula has that going on too. The the older he gets, the more attractive he is. I don't even... What?
1: <laughs> <coughs> mm.
0: What I was going to say is, um, while I'm not going to point out bad examples of this, um, there is a spectacularly well done example of um a moment when it, with a with a character whose moral gra- high ground is kind of ambiguous and um but his emotional bloodletting is the is the apex moment of this fic and it's sandstorms by Mithron. Um and when when Rodney finally breaks on that balcony and he lets loose on John and Elizabeth and Carson who have who have not treated him well since what happened with Duranda, um, and he acknowledges that he's you know, he's he, he made mistakes, but when he broke them down and pointed out the shit that they did because hello John what the fucking race who the hell is he to judge Rodney on destroying an empty solar system for fuck's sake um and it is i mean that thick is really difficult to read. It's a hard read. It's excellent work. It's character it is beautiful. Um but it is a harsh overwhelming beauty and I've only read it twice since I've been in fandom because it wears me out in a way that nothing else does. But it is that moment is is such a powerful moment that even years later it just it sticks out in my brain. And sometimes when you see people on um uh, story finders trying to find this flick that's the moment they pick that's the moment that sticks out in their brain Rodney was on the balcony giving everybody shit because of what they've done to him and there were some bugs and you're like oh that on thymithron there wasn't even a question, right? Because it's just it pops out into your head if you've read it. If you've read it, and if you've not read it, you need to. It's not a um, it's not a light read. It's not something that um, I recommend you read um, if you're already in a terrible mood because um, it's going to bring you low. Um, but it is um, a stunning piece of character work, and um, Rodney's journey um, throughout that story is amazing and I would say easily that that is the story in fandom that made me fall in love with Rodney as a character
2: I have not read that one but it is on my greed list good grief okay And I think that's one of the things you have to do If you want to have that moment Where the character Your your unicorn, whoever they are If they're going to have that moment Themselves Whether that's Harry or Rodney or Tony or John Or whoever it is that you're just Head over heels for um, If they don't have the moral high ground You can't have them Absolving themselves um, Of responsibility In the confrontation that ensues because it just that comes off as just moralizing and passing the buck, or it comes off actually in a variety of different ways, but it's usually very rarely ever good. Um,
0: One of the things I really enjoyed about Sam's in particular is that Rodney never pretended to be perfect, and Rodney never asked them to to. Um, To develop a situation in their brain where they would be disappointed in his failure. He's a scientist. Science fails. He. There, there are moments in that episode where he is epically arrogant, but, that, but that's what gets him through his day, every day. That's a survival technique for for Rodney. And but what was really interesting in this fic is the distru- the destruction of. Um. um the deconstruction of his relationships, both professionally and personally, with John, and um, to couch personal and professional failure in the same moment is difficult for anybody to take, and that's exactly mm-hmm. what happened to Roddy's character in, in the show, and it was never really addressed. The way they that he had a professional terrible, he had a fa- professional failure, and John punished him personally. When at the end of the day, no matter what came out of Rodney's mouth, he was just doing his job. And all that arrogance would have been completely dismissed if he had succeeded. Like it always was. He was that arrogant every fucking time he came out of the gate. But, literally. (laughs) And when he was successful, no one cared.
2: Right. I mean, if... I've ever met a scientist who is at the top of their field who wasn't arrogant to a fairly large degree. I mean, it, it's almost a prerequisite that they have to be able to have confidence in themselves. Um, almost, and then, <coughs> then they're milled, you
0: know? Well, that's um, the reason that Trinity is probably the dead heir of um, Stargate. <laughs> yeah. It's a pivotal moment in the series when... Um, Two kinds of fans emerged from that episode. Rodney fans... And people who were not fans of Rodney. <laughs> and, and... That's where it went. That That's the moment when Rodney's character became a... You either love him or you hate him. hmm And I see that in CIS, too. That people who... um In, in Dead Air... People who dismiss what... McGee and Ziva did... Um, do so because they don't like Tony as a character.
2: Or because they really like one of the other two and they can't reconcile
0: that behavior with their like of the character. But if it had been Tony in that car with Ziva and they had done that to McGee, poor innocent puppy McGee, have you noticed that in fandom? Yeah. I don't know... I,
2: I don't know. I don't know how the Tony fans would have responded to that. I think they would have freaked out like Tony would. Tony, Tony, it, it would have been like, as opposed so to just completely out of character. It, yeah, we would all be <coughs> like, "That is so out of character. I don't know what to do with it." And I didn't see that from McGee fans as going, "That's really out of character for McGee to do that." It's more like, as opposed to just going, "Oh, it's it's uh it, it's not that big a deal. It was a joke." Okay.
0: Except no, different. <laughs> Except no, not in reality. That's not a joke. It's it's so far from a joke. It's it's not it's not even funny. It, mm-hmm. But I, do, I I I do think you're right. I, I I think that it's really difficult to put Tony in a position of having the moral high ground unless it's a dead air situation and he gets hurt.
2: Right. Now, if you talk about isolated situations, he can have – it, it, you know, you can definitely put him in the place of the moral high ground. But usually Tony leaving or whatever, having these moments, it's usually a cumulative thing. And when you absolve Tony of blame for the situation that he finds himself in at NCIS, it just kind of falls flat and, and it's really kind of hollow to me. Um, because he did contribute. I mean, he stayed – through a lot of you know things that he should have should not have stayed through um so it's just something that you know it, depending upon what you want to do which is why i think that um also it, it, you kind of have to when you're doing these kind of reckoning moments how they're how whether or not they feel like a soapbox it also can be a um function of how they're literally positioned in the in the in the in the dynamic of the story, in the setting of the story. So for instance, Harry giving the wisdom and got or whatever however the hell that's pronounced, a um you know, a come to Jesus meeting in public like that makes sense in the narrative of the story, in the canon of that universe in the world building. That big confrontation being big and public makes a lot of sense.
0: Um and really That's what gets me about the trial in book five. I will forever see it as the biggest missed opportunity of the whole series. Of the whole book series. Because in that moment, Harry had an opportunity to do so much and he did nothing. Just saying, you know what, fuck you, take my wand, and walking out would have been better <laughs> than what he did. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying.
2: <clears throat> but, 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 I mean, that makes sense, that big public confrontation. Even if he had gone on an hour-long rant at those people, um, it wouldn't have come off like a soapbox, because it made sense in the setting and the world. It made sense, that giant contrast. There are... It is much harder to engineer a big public confrontation in, say, the NCIS fandom or CSI or any, any kind of procedural crime drama because it just, uh, unless you're talking, and uh, almost any kind of scenario you're going to, I've like threat, had buzzing through my head right now, I can discount why that wouldn't happen. So, it's like, contrived. if the person it, who.
0: It comes, comes off very contrived.
2: It does come off contrived. So, if you want, this is where if you like, if you want, if you want that moment, like if your your it is craving that moment, and you want it to resonate in a way. You kind of have to have. You got it's some of those things. where for me, it's like it's like the author, if they want it to come across well, they've got to they got they got to work for it. And if you want like a <laughs> team confrontation or whatever, odds are it's not going to happen in the bullpen. Okay, it's not going to happen that way. But the, um, I mean, there's some ways you could probably engineer it. But odds are someone else is going to probably take Asian. You could engineer it through like somebody like Pride gives Gibbs what hell privately, gives him hell privately. Gibbs gets his head out of his ass and gets his whole team together and gives them all a talking to. So there are ways you can engineer the big group confrontation where it doesn't come across as really, really contrived. Um, But it's just – this is a case of where um, even if the confrontation itself, the the word said, ring true, if Tony is giving, let's say, McGee and Ziva what for in the bullpen – He's now put in a, in a position where he's humiliating them publicly, which makes him a less sympathetic character, and potentially borderline abusive.
0: Depending upon, because he's really, in a position it's of really slotting there. him into Gibbs' position, because that's what Gibbs does every yeah. single fucking day. Mm-hmm. Because physically disciplining an adult is humiliating. Mm-hmm.
2: And whether anybody acknowledges it on the team or not, Tony is in a position of authority over the two junior agents. So if he is verbally humiliating them in the bullpen, you're right. He has taken the role of Gibbs. And you're, I think the objective in a situation where you're, where you're, where you're um, engineering this moment of reckoning is, should never be to make your character the bad guy. Unless that totally is your objective, but you don't want that unintended consequence of where your character becomes less sympathetic for achieving justice or for having their say. You don't ever want to swing that pendulum to where they're liked less for this moment.
0: I think one of the easiest ways to and. I think also what I would say that there are there is more than one kind of reckoning that mm-hmm. sometimes you can move your character in a very quiet decisive way giving them strength by simply walking away. And I think one of the best ways to um highlight Tony's dissatisfaction with NCIS and what happens um, especially like in an episode like Boxed In where he's shot and they all make a joke out of it Um, and that is literally no joking matter when something pierces your body that is not a joking matter even if it had just been a splinter from the crate he still was wounded in the line of duty he still had his shooting arm right it was his right arm yeah it was his right arm um, taken out of commission by his own partner. Um, regardless of, of what the injury was, that injury happened and it was made a joke of by the rest of the team, including Gibbs. Um, the most powerful statement Tony could make, could have made in that moment was to simply come in the next day, input his resignation, input his two weeks, and refuse to discuss it. hmm because you're not required to tell somebody while you're leaving. And not tolerate any questions of it. Or put in his resignation, claim his vacation as his two weeks notice, and double bird them as he walks out the building. Because at at a certain point, you don't, just from, like, from, a, from a reality point of view, my grandma always used to say that you don't have to set yourself on fire to keep somebody else warm. There comes a point when you don't owe anybody any explanations for what you're going to do. And I think Tony reaches that point over and over and over again. He could just say, you know what, fuck this and fuck you, I'm out. And for me personally, it would have been the day that Ziva sat down at Kate's desk. Yes. That is such
2: a... And... Tony, unfortunately, Tony was so wrapped up in the in-out dynamics um, on Gibbs' team already that I'm sure it, you could tell, in, even in the canon, he did not like her replacing Kate. But he was so used to swallowing his objections that he just put up with it. And, I mean, it says it, they, they establish a lot about Tony's, Tony psychologically in when in his acceptance of something he found really objectionable in that episode, um, but in terms of the quiet departure, um, I did an evil author day. I think it was last year, maybe the year before, um, called Impetus. It was a short um, that I never quite had a direction for, or whether I abandoned the direction it was going and started plotting something else, um, where Tony comes <laughs> in after Dead Air. And um, in the middle of the night, because he's not going to put up with what happened, and he basically delivers a nuclear strike um, in the packet of paperwork he delivers to Vance's office. All done quietly. He explains, you know, he leaves the the uh, um, the incident reports and his letter of resignation, and says he's taking vacation in lieu of notice. And because it's not safe for him to uh, clearly not safe for him to go in the field with partners who would leave him without backup, and then he walks away. And the moment of reckoning that that moment to me, him him um, him getting to that place, and he refers to it in his in his in his own narrative. He refers to it as him dealing with himself that that whole process of putting all that stuff together and writing his resignation and listening to those words on the tape as it was his moment of dealing with himself. And he delivers it and goes home and his plan, the only person he feels left to he has to deal with is he feels like he needs to talk to Gibbs personally and privately about the situation because you know, if for nothing else, he's reported a horrible procedural breach on Gibbs' team that could put another agent's life in jeopardy. And my, the, my head headcanon for Tony is he would take that seriously. The, the id is satisfied, however, in the confrontation between Gibbs and Tony that occurs later because Gibbs isn't going to let that shit go and comes to Tony's house and pushes it until Tony loses his temper. And there is no and in that and in that explosion, um, one of the reasons why I believe it doesn't come off as a soapbox is because nobody's right and nobody's wrong in that situation. Tony's just angry and Gibbs has pushed him too
0: far. I read something recently where um oh, it was on I was doing a a dive. I was doing a thick dive. I blame Azure for that. Um she's not in the chat room but she is listening. <laughs> I think she calls it thick roulette. Um, yeah, she calls it thick roulette and um I clicked on a story and I
1: <clears throat> <clears throat>
0: Tony gives his two weeks notice and um he tells Gibbs that he doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to see him tonight, so don't show up at his apartment. So what's Gibbs do? He shows up, picks the lock, comes right on in like he owns the place. And Tony justifiably loses his shit, right? Because he told him, you need to back off. You need to leave me alone, and he didn't. And I was—I found that scene really satisfying because Tony didn't back down. Tony didn't say, "Okay, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it now because you want to." He's like, "No, actually, we're not going to talk about it. You need to fucking leave." How about having a tiny amount of little respect for me? And Then he goes into his bedroom, shuts the door, and tells Gibbs to lock the door on his way out because he's done. And I'm like, "Okay, yeah,"
1: <laughs> because I hate
0: it when when um, Tony tells Gibbs in a <laughs> fit. I'm not going to talk about it, and then gives pushes and pushes and pushes until Tony talks about it. And it pisses me off that he never stands his ground, and that thick was like, yeah! <laughs> Two thumbs up! Because mm-hmm. <clears throat> Tony said, fuck you, basically, and went to his bed, and I don't know what thick it was. Like I said, I was on, um, I was on fanfiction.net, and I was I was definitely playing thick roulette, so I have no clue. But it was just a really good scene, and it really stuck out in my brain, because um, Tony didn't capitulate, which he often does. Did I say that right? Capitulate? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. I taught myself to read, for those of you who don't know, so... um I was reading before I ever got into kindergarten. And a lot of times um, I say words wrong because I learned them by reading, and I learned them by reading by myself. <laughs> so, I
2: have the same thing is that I learned so many words from reading books that I had no idea how they were pronounced. Um, it's funny, impetus is one of those words, that in my head I was saying it wrong for about 20 years. <laughs> I mean I knew the word. I knew I, exactly what it meant, but I was like I I was pr- pronouncing it completely wrong in my head.
1: Also my, my head, teenage it was years
0: <laughs> I totally said okay. Let me see. instead of saying compromise, I would say compromise. It's <laughs> cute. I know, right? And then um also I mispronounced F A U X until I was like 11 or 12 years old. Was it Fox? Absolutely. Or you say
2: Fox or something? (laughs) Fox,
0: yeah. I said Fox. Fox Fox. (laughs) (laughs) pause. Faux pause. But it, you know, right, faux? Am I saying it wrong now? Melancholy. Yeah, faux pause, right? (laughs) <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, so when you learn to when you learn words by reading them, you you create your own pronunciation in your head, and then when it comes out of your mouth, it 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 sometimes does not match what it's you know.
2: Well, and then you read, and then and then you know you get to you get older, and most of those words you didn't know when you were a teenager how to say them. You learn how to say them, so you, you kind of have gotten past that in your in your for the most part in your life of not knowing how exactly a word is pronounced even though you know the word until you read a complete AU type world like um Harry Potter where she makes up all these fucking words and then you have to you're talk like, about it and you're, you like, that,
0: you really. <laughs> you're like I don't know how to say it, or not <laughs> is it or <or-or>? or <laughs> i now really? r r or Aura. I think it's Aura with an R on the end, but I I can't do that. I can't. My tongue does not do that. <laughs> R. Magical Cop. <laughs> Fuck it. Terrible. <laughs> I totally said Animagus wrong forever as well. I, I said Animagus. I don't know why. Might as well. John well, a lot or, of the spells, or, or,
2: or,
0: huh? That's terrible. Yeah, I is
2: but it's terrible because I mean, who want? It just it doesn't it doesn't matter how many times I say or, it does not come out of my mouth feeling natural, and like
0: it, other it words, I can really awkward.
2: Yeah, other words I've gotten used to being able to say them, um, and they don't feel awkward, but or just it never feels right. <laughs> It looks right on the page. It kind of sounds right in my head too, but when I say it, it's like, "What the
0: fuck?" I don't understand why "animagus" is is what it is. That isn't. I don't know. I, that's just that's just not how I would have said it. But I'm not British, so maybe that makes the difference. So, but I didn't know how I say "animagus" until we were on a podcast and you corrected me. Oh. Yeah. But I was saying animal, anima-
2: Animagus? And I,
0: yes. Yes. Animagus. Yeah, like animal. Mm-hmm. Because that made sense to me, but oh, Joanne. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't
1: think, think of I the movies it was the harpy. I thought it was
0: the. I, was I think a, it depends a, on who's saying it in the movies because their accents are a little different across the board. Yeah.
2: i have to go bust out the third movie and see how the fuck they pronounced it. Um, <laughs> because um, I, I, don't, I, mean, see, I don't know how she constructed I assumed that she was constructing most of these words from Latin roots. Um um and so I assumed it was um I assumed the anna ani and the anna part of it was related to animus which is for the soul which doesn't really make a lot of sense.
0: Um um I assume so too, that's why I always make the um the uh, spirit animal in my in my Harry Potter fix when I give one of them a, a form, um I make it uh, very much like say um, what I would do if they were a sentinel or a guide. Which mm-hmm. is especially the, the, important the, in Darkly Lowell. I put a lot of effort into those <laughs> those forms that never went up again.
2: <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that that the the, the Tonks ability the metamorph, the metamorph, met, metamorph, oh my gosh, now I can't say it, metamorph, <laughs> I, I, Jesus, that's <laughs> terrible. It sounds right in my head, but I can't quite get it out. I'm pretty sure that's magus and not magus or magus. Um, but it could be metamorph magus.
0: <laughs> it sounds <laughs> a little too buggy. A little a little too buggy, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, thank you, Joanne.
2: Thank you for the all, all the new arc. words and help letting us all revisit our teens of uh, where we're asked to read something where we're like, well... Um, his impetus for going to the store was his what for going to the store? Oh, shut up. How do you pronounce it?
0: I'm just going to start saying shit like Dobby would. Was he
1: not? <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat>
2: <clears throat> mm.
1: Mm-mm-mm. What but so you know like,
2: the question that question that K- Kiki asked is mm-hmm. about is like in terms of walking the line. It's always like looking at um, looking at how to you know how do you walk the line um, between soapbox and a I I guess like a righteous confrontation or kind of keeping your character in character. It's kind of a bizarre thing to do, um, but one thing you can try is put yourself actually in the headspace of the person um in the wrong and um you can you can kind of get a feel for if your the character is going over the line because if the character that is being confronted is utterly humiliated, degraded, and feeling abused by the end, you've probably gone too far.
1: Unless
0: there, there is um yeah if you want to go there go there but own it um there, there because there is a line between righteousness and um viciousness mhm um and it, it it it's a matter of um physical action um tone um your language choices i think um a lot of people stumble when it when it comes to dialogue and um it's it's something that I stumbled on when I was younger. My my dialogue was very awkward and very formal and um I worked very hard on my dialogue, which is why I consider it now to be one of my better um skills. Um and it's it, it's important to know <coughs> as a writer what you're good at and what you're not so good at. And I do think that um that if I had to pick out three things that I'm really good at, it's characterization, dialogue, and sex. <laughs> and by, I characterization,
1: I mean oh, um, by characterization, I mean
0: consistency. Oh, thanks. By characterization, I mean consistency. Because I've seen characters um, span an entire Grand Canyon in a single thick. You're thinking, how the hell did Harry get from here to over fucking there? It's like 10 miles difference. What happened? It's only been a paragraph. <laughs> what happened? You know, so, um... If you keep your character consistent, and you keep their language... um consistent throughout the story, even in moments when they are delivering that proverbial smackdown, um, it keeps them true. So, for instance, if you have a character who hasn't really let loose a single cuss word the entire story, all of a sudden, everything is prefaced preface by the word "fuck," you've got a problem. You you've gone off the rails with your character.
2: Um, they can do it once or twice, and the fact uh, that they fuck, don't
0: fuck, swear, fuck, fuck,
1: fuck, 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 fuck.
2: the fact that they don't ever swear when they do swear, it should be a moment where everybody kind of goes, "Boom!" Did Harry? Did Harry just, or did Hermione just swear? Just say the F word. But <laughs> if Holy Hermione shit. does it over and over and over and over again, it loses its punch. <clears throat> It's also inconsistent because if she's somebody who doesn't swear and she's pushed and where she just kind of – it's just kind of explodes. She's using it literally as an expletive. It's like, ah, it just popped out, and it captures everybody's attention. If she just keeps on doing it, then she's not in character anymore.
1: And also, you
0: – when I'm giving a reckoning – um, when I'm moving through a reckoning with my character. Um, I focus on truth instead of insult. And while the truth can be insulting, insults aren't always truthful. Does that make sense? hmm I mean, you can point out something that somebody did was stupid, but if you turn around and call them a stupid bitch... You cross the line between being um, righteous and being vicious. And I think that happens a lot.
2: You can have um, a confrontation with somebody. You know, as part of ma- some management training I've done in the past. They talk about how to have constructive confrontations, which really is like the worst classes in the world. But there are some, you know, useful tips that they give you that hopefully people, you know, these people in their 30s and 40s have learned some of these communication skills by that point in their life, but, but they often haven't, which one of the things they talk about is when you're, when you're having a, con- a difficult conversation with somebody because there are moments where you have to have that um, often when somebody's having a one-on-one, you-fucked-up meeting, I call them come to Jesus meeting, um, is not to personalize them. Because you can point out that somebody's actions were poorly considered or ill-considered and not call them a fool. Dealing with the facts and the ramifications of the facts is potentially a reckoning. Telling somebody that they're an idiot and they, they, you know that they, they're never going to go anywhere in life or that they don't deserve to live, or whatever that starts to get into being abusive. That's no longer a reckoning. So um, And it's funny, one of the things I'm noticing as we're talking about this, the more we talk about it, is what is the line, because she asked about, is it difficult to walk the line? It's actually really the line you're mostly walking is a characterization line. It's not so much how to engineer your reckoning or who's going to say what. It's like what is going to be in character and what is going to keep your characters in character. And if they're in character, how would this proceed? And where things go off the rails or where you you get soapboxes where you get abusive situations is when your characters diverge dramatically for these reckonings or the come-to-Jesus meetings or whatever they are from what you've established
0: for them in the story. Also, I think it's important when you're working through these issues um, with your character um, to keep gender politics in mind. Most especially if um, you're dealing with a male character delivering um, some hard truth to a female character. Uh, There is a line you can cross um, when your male character... Is in a verbally aggressive situation um, that can really damage your reader's perception of him. You have to be super careful when you're female, when you're when the woman is the bad guy in in a scene. You have to be really, really careful. Now, this is coming from somebody who's been accused of misogyny. <laughs> <clears throat> because apparently, if you write a woman as a bad a, a, a bad guy, you're um, you're automatically a misogynist. And if you write a bad guy as a guy, you're misandrist. Um, <laughs> or is that is, is that how you say that?
2: Misandrist?
0: Because I've been accused of misandry and misogyny.
2: You're just a misanthrope. I mean, people just need to get through with the right
0: verbiage. I know. Like, sorry, I just hate people. I look forward to that whole anti Semite um, uh, accusation when I when I bang into NCIS like a hurricane.
1: Yeah, I got <laughs> that. I don't like um, Ziva. <laughs> I got that
0: this week because
2: um, I uh, I was asked if I hate Jews this week because of the way I write Ziva in my NCIS fix. I was not particularly amused by that whole conversation. I was actually really, really cut. Yeah, and the thing is, that's the thing is, there's no right way to um, um. There's, there's this, just uh, unless you make all of your characters wealthy white, your bad guys wealthy white men, um, you probably will get uh, somebody might eventually accuse you of uh, misandry or misandry, whichever way you want to pronounce it, and. But otherwise, you're going to get it no matter what you do. If it's a woman, you're a misogynist. If it's anyone who's not white, you're a racist. If it's, um, and in the case if Ziva, if Ziva's your antagonist, apparently you're anti-Semitic.
0: Um, I don't so, like Ziva, but I don't care what her religion is because I don't like anybody's religion.
2: Well, the funny thing is, I I actually talked to a friend of mine who was. Um, born in israel and we were talking about this email we had lunch and this whole email thing came up and i talked to her but i told her she said you know that it's not just jews who work for Mossad, right and i said i actually do know that <laughs> she said so if you never bring up ziva's religion how do they how did they infer that you hate jews and i said uh well and egocentric People looking for a problem where there is none? I don't know.
0: I wouldn't bring up her nationality or her religion. But what I have found... um, Well, I don't care what Canon says. I still wouldn't bring up her religion. Um, What I find really offensive in NCIS fic is when people call her the Israeli.
2: The Israeli. Yeah, Yeah, the... Um unless um, the only reason the only reason to mention someone's nationality for me, that kind of epithet is if it's relevant to the scene um it's sort of like people constantly referring to Tony as the Italian, but actually calling her the Israeli is worse because Tony's not actually from Italy um but you know people it's just we've had this sort of you know we're so averse to using names too much, especially in fan fiction. Um you don't see this as much in original fiction. You know, that you'll refer to somebody as the tall dark-haired Italian over calling him Tony twice in a row. Um and that's just, you know, just stop. Just don't just call him Tony. Or he he is good. He am whatever. Um But you know, unless somebody's unless where somebody's trauma is is relevant, but like I never I I never ever talk about Diva's religion. Um and I only talk about where she's from in so much as it's related to where she's going to be going. <laughs> because I tend <laughs> to ship her, back, her to back to quite Israel quite regularly. <laughs>
0: that or Gitmo.
2: Yeah, because yeah, I did like the one where I said her Gitmo. Um, because this really is, its it, there was nothing about Ziva's religion that is relevant at all to anything I've ever written. So it's never come up. So the fact that in canon she's Jewish means... Nothing to me, in terms of how I'm going to write her. Is that I'm not going to exclude somebody from being an antagonist in the story, um, Honestly, based upon. I don't
0: think it meant much to the writers of NCIS either.
2: No, they never brought up her religion. I mean, the only the only obvious um, nod to her religion was that the she was star of David, as far as I know. There may have been Which a couple I of things. Moreover, but... the
0: actress, not the
2: character. Well, she's from Chile, so I don't. It seems unlikely, really. Because I thought possible. she was Jewish. No, she was. I think she was born in Chile. Where was Cody DePablo born?
0: I knew she wasn't Israeli, but I did think she was Jewish. I don't know why I thought that. Maybe it's because her next movie, at, her next project after NCIS, she played another Jewish character. I guess she just could be typecast. But I really did think she was Jewish. Could be wrong. I don't actually care. I mean, yeah, you can look up. it, it'd be fun to know, but in the scheme of things, um, somebody's religion is exactly 0% of how I build my opinion of them, unless they use their religion like a weapon. Yeah. I wouldn't know, I stopped watching NCIS after... Um,
2: Yeah, her religion just isn't – it wasn't relevant on the show, except that maybe if there, was an, if there was an episode that took place in a synagogue, then maybe that was relevant in some fashion. Maybe she was meeting her father, and that was a case of his religion being relevant in that one particular episode. I don't particularly remember it. The necklace actually was an oddity, um, um, not because she shouldn't have been able to wear the Star of David, but it was an oddity for somebody who's an undercover asset to wear something that distinctive.
0: I agree. Um, it it's 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 not it's just not a good idea.
2: Yeah, it could be that it she was, was a reflection pictures. of the fact that she was living in the United States and she felt comfortable. I mean, it could have been a reflection of that, but I think if she were actually um an active Masad asset that she would not wear anything on her person um that would would be that identifying. But anyway, so it's just—it was just—it's just weird that some people jump to these conclusions um, about, uh, you know.
0: I got asked if, ask if I was a man people, hater. I would have responded,
2: some men. <laughs> there are a few who've totally,
0: totally earned that. But, they, they, he he asked me if I hated men. Um, it was a het reader um, when I was um, heavily, heavily invested in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, and I'm thinking to myself. What part of every Harry Potter's soulmate bond Can make you think I hate men And then it came out A That of- he was homophobic And he um, thought that I was writing um, Serious is bisexual because I hate men oh,
1: And I know. had to tell
0: him That I wrote Serious is bisexual Because I think that is sexy as fuck
1: <laughs> We're so
0: but- And then I told People- him but the only thing better than one dick was two. <laughs> and he That's unfriended right. me on Facebook. That's okay though. I need his friendship anyway.
2: People will read something negative into your work
0: if when
2: if they want to. They have their egocentric um view point. Um and a lot of sometimes and sometimes readers are very small minded. I mean you never know. So, some, so, you know, as a as a um When you're writing, when you're making your choices, you need to make your choices about what is um, good for your character, what the character is, and not what is going to offend your readers. Because, you know, I I get called on stuff, my character, and actually, oh my gosh, it just came up in the thingy. Um, You can't blame, the quote um, just came up in Kira's slideshow. Um, You can't blame a writer for what the characters say. Um,
0: And it's like, I've had that experience.
2: You have, if you're writing, if you're writing, especially if you're writing a character who is an antagonist, or even if <clears throat> it's kind of just different, people have different viewpoints, um, and then you write something that is um, um, that reflective of their character, people will assume that that is reflective of you as a person, as the writer, and they will get angry at you over it. So this is a very bizarre example, and it's a very tiny example. Um, But in um, Emergence, Tony's very preoccupied with the fact that he might wind up with pink scales because he's struggling with the fact that he's feeling feminized in a lot of ways. A lot of the information he's been given is feels like he's losing his masculinity. So He doesn't have that thought overtly, but every time something comes up that strikes him as being um, more female than male that he's being told, he struggles with it. And so it becomes, he's fixated on this pink thing. And um, it's not a reflection of how I feel about gender dynamics or, or men versus women. It's a reflection of how Tony feels about it. So I, on more than one occasion, got poked about Tony's obsession with not being girly and what was wrong with a guy having pink scales. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to walk you through what that whole thing was about because, you know, I don't need to. If you didn't, you, it, you didn't get it, you didn't get it. If you get it or you don't. But this is that was a reflection of where he was, what he was going on with his character, which was his feeling like his... Humanity, his masculinity, everything he knew about himself had been challenged, and he was told he was about to have this big change. And then, then you know, he fixates stupidly, yes, because we do fixate on some a lot of times on appearance over substance. And so he fixates on the idea that he might wind up being pink. And we.
0: <laughs> I had a similar experience over one line in what might have been. There's a scene where um, Sebastian, John, Rodney, their whole entourage is in a bookstore. And there's a newspaper right right there front and center, and Sebastian sees it, um, where they're questioning whether or not John, as a gay man, should have custody of his own child. Um and Sebastian, who grew up in California and traveled around the world with his mother in very exotic locations, turns to them and says, apparently, I'd be better off living in a hovel with a couple in Nebraska. Because that's probably literally the worst you could think of. He's 10, right? And it, I don't know how people live in Nebraska. I don't have any kind of a barely literate couple in a hovel in Nebraska. It's just like the worst thing he could possibly think of, right? So... About a week after that's published, someone sends me an essay on how awesome Nebraska is. Like that was my personal opinion. And I was oh like, dude. My God. The character is ten years old. Get over From it. From California. That is literally the worst thing he could think of. And that He's is something 10. somebody in
2: California would say. Especially, it's
0: just, it's especially
2: a ten year old. It is
1: especially a ten year old.
0: This is a kid, this is not me I said I don't know much about Nebraska But I did not assume that you all lived in Hobbles And that you were all better literate I said obviously you can read Since you read my story But they were really upset And I was like what really Come on now That's what you get upset about <laughs> But it was an essay that... on how awesome Nebraska is Yeah. So Nebraska is awesome this... you guys I'm
2: sure it is awesome and this is one of those egocentric things. Is people are so egocentric that they're reading stuff and they're 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 internalizing and personalizing everything. So, um, so like in in intuitive um, Tony, um, and somebody wrote me about this. Um, Tony um, is giving this class early on in the story, um, explaining law enforcement procedures with regards to handling people who are psionically active. And he says over and over and over again, what his constant mantra is, it doesn't matter what you think, your personal opinions mean nothing. When you put on the badge, you're here to do a job. Do your job, keep your opinions to yourself. Um, So somebody had written me an email about Tony's um, reversal of opinion about the whole thing once he himself was being um, – it was phrased really negatively about how now that he was a victim of the whole situation, he saw things differently. I never went into
0: Tony's personal viewpoints about the whole thing. Because it wasn't about his – literally, it wasn't about his personal perspective. Right. It was about – and that's,
2: and the thing is, there is, when you're in a public service job like that, your personal opinions don't matter when it comes to the enforcement of the law. It is irrelevant. You don't get to decide, um, in theory it, and then idealistically, you don't get to decide um, if you like a law or not, whether or not you're going to enforce
0: it. it <laughs> There's a line in, in nature where someone questions John about um, it's um, about the removal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and one of the people who's come to Atlantis with, with O'Neill asks, um, "What if you know? What if they get ideas and?" John says they're Marines, they don't have ideas, they have orders. <laughs> right.
2: And it's funny, it's like people, I don't know, people have this expectation um, that the central character's viewpoint. Are both going to always be politically correct in some fashion and agreeable to them personally, and that somehow that whatever that all characters' viewpoints in the story, even the mass murdering fuckhead, that everybody's viewpoints are somehow reflective of the author's morals.
1: Oh, it just God.
2: it just doesn't work that way.
0: If I've had one person ask me if I've had the sex I've written, I've had a 100. And I remember being at a, um, a dinner party um, with um, a mixed group of people. There was some family there, and um, there was some – they married into our family, but they're not really related to us, but they're here anyway, family. <laughs> you know, it's just about 50 to 60 people, and um, someone, one of them had read a book that I had written, and she said, so – have you ever had a threesome? Now the answer to that question actually is yes. But that is not a question that I would answer yes to in public. And I said, Well currently I'm um I'm working on um a suspense novel, so I've got three bodies buried in the backyard. <laughs> and I said it as as straight faced as I possibly could her mouth dropped open. I said, you know, that's the crazy thing. You know, when people find out that you wrote this, this, or this, you know, they automatically assume that you do freaky-ass sex shit. There's a sex swing in in the closet. There is. Um, But they don't ever ask you if you've killed people when you're writing a suspense. I said, it's curious, isn't it? That you feel perfectly um, comfortable asking me about my sex life, but you don't want to know about the bodies I have buried in the backyard? I my mom put me in the, the corner. You got in the <laughs> my mom put me in the corner. She says, go, go over there. Get get a beer. <laughs> <laughs> you were on a time out. <clears throat> <clears throat> but seriously, I would get asked those questions all the time. Have you done this? Have you done that? Have you done anal? I mean, people would be like, I'm... and depending on the person, they would get a variety of sarcastic, smart-ass responses. Yeah, let, let me get my strap-on out. <laughs> would you like a demonstration? <coughs> <clears throat> Hell yeah, I've been on the Galaxy. I'll have, you know I'm the queen of fucking Pegasus. I thought you knew. People on Facebook know, I've got a avatar and everything that says it.
1: <sighs> I the Empress so Queen
0: it's, Yeah but you know They assume that you have your character's Opinions, your character's experiences Unless your character's experiences Are a little too far out there <laughs> <clears throat> If you ride a misogynist Then you're a misogynist um, If you ride a freak You're a freak you got a sex doll in the closet. I don't have a sex doll in the closet. I did have a sex doll once, but I gave him away. I I, I, I gave him back to Amazon, and I felt guilty ever since because he probably got recycled, and it makes me sad. I should have kept him.
2: Yeah, this is funny thing is like when I'm writing um, anything related to BDSM, which I don't do very often, but when it comes up, I'm more likely, more likely. There's certainly a level of personal experience I draw from. But I'm more likely to write about stuff I've researched than my own personal kinks because I have this horrible, horrible tendency when I'm writing about stuff that I have actively or frequently participated in to go off on safety rants and <laughs> <laughs> my narrative. It's awful. So I, and nobody wants to read that. Nobody wants to read my safety rants. So it's just, you know <laughs> –
0: you could just you could ride it and then take it then then take the safety the 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 safety pointers out. That'd be hard. It would be hard. It would be tough. <laughs> <sighs> I did have a reader um um email me and um ask me if I had um um been caned. Um and it was a man, and I was like, "Dude, that's absolutely none of your business." <laughs> what? <laughs> you need to mind your own business. <clears throat> I've had people uh, message me and offer to talk me. Um. Okay. Then there was that one person. There, then there was that one person who was low key. Um, uh making me dom him but I didn't even realize it until like after the fact no, that he would purposely yeah. do things to, to get my back up so I would lecture him and I'm, I'm 99% certain he was getting off on it subversive okay. submissiveness I don't even know what that is it was really really creepy once I realized what what he was doing uh-huh. <clears throat>
2: I'm having a very unhappy moment.
0: (laughs) You you were there for that. You witnessed that epiphany. I
2: did. It "It will not be your non-consensual dom. Stop it. (laughs) It was, ah. You can't make me top you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Creepy motherfucker. But, yeah, so people are going to assume things about your work, and um, they're going to... um, Judge your um, your hits and misses, and um, they might see failure where you see success. And so it's important that you write for you and, and not for anybody else. And if you're happy with, with your righteous moment, then that's all there needs to be. Uh, but I also think it's important to be honest with yourself about your writing. And um, if you go too far, you need to acknowledge that. And either you accept that you've done it and leave it the way it is, or you correct it. Mm-hmm. So where you would well, like that,
1: it.
2: That being honest with yourself part is really the key. It's like, what is it that you want? You know, <laughs> are you looking to improve your craft because you want to be a better writer? Do you have aspirations to 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 maybe be published someday, or do you just want to move into original fic even if it's not something you want to publish? Um, you know, what are you trying to do? Do you just want to write your id fics? Do you just want to be self-indulgent and just write the things that emotionally satisfy you, whether they're good craft or not? If, it, you know, and the thing is, there's no right or wrong answer to that question. It sounds like there's a judgment in that, but there really isn't. The conversation we're having is people who want to do something want to progress if you want to just write things that you find emotionally satisfying to you and you know exactly what those things are and you just want to do fan fiction and you're happy where you are then this isn't conversation isn't directed at you just own what you're actually doing don't call it something that it's not don't call dark evil abusive harry independent harry it's not you know just put the right label on it
0: one thing I have a difficult time with in fandom is character bashing. And not the actual act of character bashing, but the label itself. Because you can't make a character a bad guy without being accused of character bashing. Now for mm-hmm. me personally, I see character bashing as um, a character taken out of context, giving no motivation, um, and made an asshole. Just you can get rid of them. But if I work my ass off to give a character um, motivations and goals, um, I don't appreciate my bad guy um, representation being called a character bash. Because if I'm given a central and and, and really deep, profound reason for them being a fucking asshole, I don't think that's bashing. Right. Uh, It's...
2: This is a case of where, like we talk about, sometimes some things you got to work for, and when you work for it, it's just not. Uh, you know, I I followed. I found some a bunch of links to my stuff to my site um, on a bookmark site, and you know people can comment on their own bookmarks. And this person commented on all of the bookmarks for. They had most of my stuff bookmarked, and said, you know, she bashes characters in every one of her stories, but they're still entertaining, and. I, I, that really bothered me because it's, some of the stories where I get accused of character bashing, I haven't done anything but reference canon events in a realistic way, like Dead Air, which
0: apparently is so character if, bashing.
2: So if um, um, the the one the one that I got the most grief about this for actually was the Journey Home, which has very little McGee or Ziva in it at all, but I addressed the issue, the, the events of dead air were, um, I actually kind of unbashed the characters in a way because I gave a sort of a reason for their behavior. It wasn't an excuse, but there was something going on that contributed to their bad behavior. They kind of mitigated it a tiny bit. And um, otherwise, all that happened were some consequences over the thing, and they actually didn't canon. And this person had tagged that fic as character bashing. What about acknowledging canon is bashing a character?
0: That's like being accused of of bashing Dumbledore because he left Harry on a doorstep. Really? Because that's what he did. (laughs) Is it wrong? Is it bashing to point out how fucking stupid that is? Because 15 months old, most of them can crawl. A lot of them can walk. He's saying words. There's no evidence that he's put any kind of security up or he's put this kid to sleep. And the fact is is because Harry dreamed later on of flying with Hagrid. He wasn't sleeping under some sleep charm. That whole time. Because he dreamed of being on the motorcycle with Hagrid. So this is an this is a toddler they put on a doorstep and walked away from with a note. And it's character bashing to point out how dumb that is. Come on. Apparently. Now. Well, it's like you know with, with, with McGee. If you characterize him as any way other
2: than for for people who are what I would call the rabid fans of McGee, there are people who are what I would call reasonable fans, and then there's people who just have just no perspective. Um, the rabid fans of McGee. If you characterize him as anything other than competent and supportive, and friend and a good friend, they're going to be all over you for bashing McGee. I'm sorry, Cannon doesn't portray him in that manner. He is not portrayed as competent all the time in canon he's the bigger of all the people on the team he probably might make more mistakes than mcgee does but he does make mistakes on a fairly regular basis um he's not supportive in any way shape or form he's not strong-willed he's stubborn but he's not strong-willed and it's just all these things that they get annoyed about you're bashing mcgee because you pointed out these weaknesses in his character i'm like i'm sorry canon pointed out those weaknesses in his character how can that be character
0: bashing The single biggest weakness in his character, and it is canon, is his utter lack of ethics as a writer. Mm Mm-hmm. That book. Oh, that book. Um, Because there are precious few realities where that wouldn't have got him sued off his fucking ass. He abused his coworkers, and made money off his coworkers through that abuse. It is an ethical step. once taken, I think, is irredeemable especially considering what he did to the, his coworkers in that book <clears throat> from the necrophilia um to the incompetence to riding them in such a way that he actually um realistically should have endangered Tony um while Tony was undercover mm-hmm. um
2: Especially since people, somebody figured out they they, they easily pierced um, the veil on on his pseudonym because there was a whole episode yeah. about that that somebody figured out who who McGee was and was killing people in the way of his upcoming book. Um, so figuring out who he was clearly in canon wasn't a problem, which means his he hung his coworkers out to dry. And if you point any of that out, you're bashing McGee. No, 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 no. No. Facts are not bashing. Now, I'm, there are times when I read something where I go, okay, that has crossed the line into character bashing. It's not often in NCIS, frankly. I see that a lot more, Rego right? They've crossed the line in character bashing in, like, Harry Potter. But in NCIS, when it comes to Gibbs, um, um, McGee, Ziva, Abby, um, there's. <laughs> a you could you could you can you can turn them one or two degrees, and since since they kind of have um, since they're kind of morally bankrupt anyway, um, you turn them one or two degrees, and they can be realistically abusive, and you haven't ventured into character bashing. So c- character bashing is a lot bigger step in uh, NCIS than it is. I'm not saying
0: against character bashing because sometimes I enjoy that shit. Oh yeah, I'm just saying that uh, I think that there's. Line between um, turning a character and and exploring their personality and consequences of their actions um, that is not bashing and it shouldn't be considered bashing
2: right whereas in Harry Potter there there are some characters that you, you have to turn them further to get them to that point to the point that they're out of character and once you've turned somebody to the point where they're completely out of character. <laughs> and there's no reasonable setup for why they're doing what they're doing. Um, I mean, yeah, that you could argue that crosses into character bashing. And, you know, character bashing is probably right up there where my idvick is. You know, I really enjoy, you know, some characters just getting holy hell on occasion. No,
0: I um, and he's actually yeah. the easiest character in Harry Potter to turn um, just a few degrees. And you, you don't even have to go far to do it because he is jealous and uh, lazy and I actually he has an inferiority complex but um, I I honestly if I have a personal pet peeve when it comes to being around other people it is um, I cannot stand to be around somebody who is irrationally jealous of things that other people have mm-hmm And that put me off Ron's character from the get-go. I cannot, I, I, oh, I hate that kind of petty-ass, disgusting personality, (laughs) because it's not really a behavior. That's a personality trait, and it's hard to get over, Mm -hmm. and it's hard to get past, which is why I think that, um, realistically, that Hermione would have probably killed Ron within a year of their marriage if they ever even got that far, and they shouldn't have.
2: Well, it's why it's so easy to believe that Ron potioned her into marrying him. <laughs> I still even even Ron has potioned Hermione into marrying him doesn't cross the line to bashing to me because I can't see any other reasonable explanation for how he got her to be his wife. Uh, just, unless his just mother is so. Married. Well, her mother, <laughs> right, but it's because she's so there's lazy. some there's. There's some outside influence there because it never made sense in the book. that It's like, we she all his, start reading she between was, the lines when Hermione starts falling for Ron. I, I mean, JK she's his may, may not have put anything trophy. there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she, she may not have put anything between the lines, but as soon as she started falling for Ron, we all started looking for it because it was so weird.
0: It made no sense. None. Brightest Witch of the Age. Laziest motherfucker to ever go to Hogwarts. It just doesn't... It doesn't compute. It it just literally makes no sense. Mm -hmm. I don't get it. Claire says, I was shocked on the first train ride when Ron was cheered up by pointing out... By Harry pointing out his horrible home life. Because he... Ron is that person who feels better when other people are worse off than he is. And that kind of person is disgusting to be around.
1: Mhm.
2: Oh, something bad happened to you? That's so great.
1: What? <laughs> I mean <laughs>
0: Apparently we bunnied Azure. I don't know. What, I don't know. What we bunnied her with, but she's trying to run away from a plot bunny, and calling us bastards, or she's calling her bunny a bastard. I don't know. One of the two. I'll own it either way. I don't care. <laughs>
2: uh, <coughs> I'm not sure if she's calling us bunny bastards or just bastards.
0: Because <laughs> either way, I'm I'm fine with it. Either way, I don't care. Um. To, to quote my mother, I don't care. <laughs> oh, your house burned down. You don't have a nice That is exactly what Ron is like. And it's really off-putting. He's petty and he's jealous and he's um, greedy and lazy. And these are all things that I absolutely hate. And to have them rolled into one person, it's just an obscenity. <laughs> it's just an awe. Oh, I hate him. I really, It really broke my heart when Fluffy didn't eat him. I'm just saying.
2: That needs to be rectified.
1: <laughs>
2: because I'm pretty certain his, his his uh function in life is dog chow. So that's his calling.
0: <laughs> I always thought that Ron would end up being Peter Pettigrew. That that he would be the Peter of their generation. And then when he left them to... during the, the the hunt, I was like, okay, that's the Peter moment. That's when he's going to turn. The next time they see him, he's going to be a Death Eater. Now, the fun I thing saw thing about that and Ron... I was like, ah, fuck me. <laughs> the interesting thing I
2: think about Ron is <laughs> I call... The way we often see Ron characterized, there is there is some turning, okay, but most of the time when Ron is just lazy, shiftless, useless, and potioning Hermione into marriage, I don't even call that a turn. I just call that a reasonable extrapolation based upon canon events. <laughs>
0: um, it actually takes We're just more turns. Explain what you did, Joanne. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right. It actually takes a bigger turn, a more obvious turn, to make Ron. A sympathetic supportive character I've, was, I've I've read a couple of stories where I'm kind of stunned that I liked Ron and he's portrayed really well and he's a good friend that to me it, it's actually it's it, it's done well, it still comes across as in character, but to me that's actually a slightly bigger turn than Ron potioning Hermione into a loveless marriage um which is weird because I just you know. Making him be the good guy is a bigger shift in character to me than um, because well, it's in canon I didn't do a guy as a racist than yeah. a good
0: guy. Now there's a common <laughs> there's,
2: a, there's, a, there's a common trope with Ron where he is. Um, like paid to be Harry's friend, and all he all he's into it for is money. Now that's a bigger turn, not an unreasonable turn, but it is a bigger turn
0: than just no, Ron he's is just is lazy, right? But it, but it doesn't um, is like does not as lazy as we think he is because he's you know making an effort to be Harry's friend for money. <laughs> right, but the reason you know the thing is when
2: you think about it, you think based upon Ron being kind of the way just the way he is in canon. If he's presented with the opportunity for something he felt is lacking, um, you, we'll give you a little bit of money, you'll make some money, you just keep an eye on Harry and report what he does. It's a slight, like it is a, slight, it is a little bit more of a turn for Ron, but it's not, still not much of one because he's just the kind of kid who would have latched on to that. If presented
0: with those circumstances,
1: he would have
2: been
0: all over that. Um, I'm writing a story called Pendragon um, Legacy, and, um, I think it's on EAD,
2: right? Mm, it's on while here.
0: No. No, that's no, on Phoenix. on while
2: there. Pendragon's on, yeah, it's on.
0: Isn't that one of your excerpts okay. that's on your, um, site? Yeah, it, it. well, it's an excerpt somewhere. It's, 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 it's available somewhere. I'm so, so I'm not sure where it is. Um, I think and that someone asked site. me why I made Jenny, um... The way she is, because there's really no uh, explanation. And that's just genuine character fashion right there, because I don't like her. And I responded, I said, because Jenny's an asshole. (laughs) And that is 100% the entire reason that she is the way she is in that fic. Because I think she's an asshole. (laughs) And that's that's it. She's an ambitious little cunt and doesn't care how she gets money as long as she gets it. And um, that's just... And that is genuine character bashing right there because I don't give her any kind of underlying um Yes, eventually her mother does latch onto the idea that the diary ruined her, but and honestly, it's just because Jenny's a kind <laughs> it's just what it is. <coughs> it is on my site. Thank you, Jeep. <coughs> <coughs> It's a sneak peek. And I have a couple of variations on that whole Pendragon theme. I have another one um, where um, Merlin comes through time and because um, uh, Harry is the reborn um, Arthur, and he takes Harry and a group of kids from Hogwarts to teach them. So instead of spending their fifth year with Umbridge, um... They get to go to Avalon <laughs> instead.
2: I'd be like, sign me up for that trip. <laughs> Just seeing, <laughs> even even if all I had seen of her was her clothes, I'd have been like, can I There's go? There's a pink toad in the castle.
0: <laughs> I want to go. <laughs> um, but uh, Merlin asks um, Harry a series of questions, and he has to provide um, um, a name to answer each question is like you know, who understands the dark, who understands the light, um, who is the smartest who is the wisest um, and he picks people, he says names in response, you know, who is the most loyal um, and those people are chosen to go back with him to Avalon to, to, to be with him as he um, is trained um, and taught to become king and I have it all plotted out, but I, I haven't written it. And what's really interesting is that um, I pick Snape as as one of the um, – who goes with him. So.
1: And I, I rarely ever redeem him.
0: <laughs> it's Snape and Minerva and Hermione um, and Neville and Luna and Draco um, uh, and Dobby and Hagrid. and they take him and he takes them all with him and they um, are in a time bubble and a year passes for everybody else but they're in it for I don't know five or six years I haven't really determined so when they come back out Harry's an adult and Dumbledore don't even know what to do with that
2: (laughs) they'd all pop out adults I'm working on a um yeah. I've plotted it, a redemption fic for Snape and Voldemort. <laughs> oh,
1: my God. I can't believe I said what? that.
2: Yeah, I know, right? It's probably, of all the weird ideas I've ever had, it probably ranks up there as the weirdest.
1: <laughs> I read a
0: really interesting Voldemort redemption one where Lily, as a ghost influences um, Harry and Quirrell and Petunia and um, Sirius and what she does is that she helps them gather all the Horcruxes and um, forces Riddle to seek redemption because of Dumbledore's manipulations because everything that happened to Riddle Everything that happened to Harry was Dumbledore being a manipulative jackass. And what was really what stuck out in my mind about this particular fic is that um, Quirrell becomes the headmaster of um, Hogwarts. He makes all the teachers make vows on their magic to not endanger the students, and they have to like cancel Quidditch. first time they have a game, the whole faculty comes running out onto the field because it is so monumentally stupidly dangerous. (laughs) And all the bludgers get destroyed,
2: and it's just, it's a mess. If anybody finds that fic, you guys send me the link, because that sounds entertaining.
0: (laughs) But she, um, she makes, um, she, she makes a deal with Quirrell, and they gather up all his horcruxes, and, um, he thinks um he he recognizes what happened to him and um and what dumbledore did to him and he is um remorseful he is beyond remorseful um and he changes the magical world and he starts with hogwarts
2: wow i'm just uh, um okay Um, I'm, um, I'm doing a a complete go back to, um, the premise of the story is that, um, I'm doing kind of one of those, someday there's going to be an apocalypse kind of thing, and the Wizarding World is set up in canon.
0: Huh? Azure knows that thick. It's called Lily's Changes, and Claire just gave you a link. Cool. Um, so I'm doing this
2: idea that, um, um, I already plotted the story, which is that um, the, the linchpin in preventing the person who has the power, um, the charisma, all of this stuff, to prevent the destruction of magic is Tom Riddle. But he corrupts his soul, and once he's dead, and once that that series of events happens, it's it, nothing that magic has tried. To stop the destruction of magic happens. It's like he was the linchpin, and his um, corruption in his childhood um, is what basically winds up destroying magic. So the world keeps getting reset, and he keeps and he when he goes to the afterlife, his soul is all put. I have a different headcanon about. The souls can't actually be destroyed. They're just actually untethered from the objects. But anyway, so every time he goes into the afterlife, his soul is recombined and he has all of his memories come back to him. And his first thing is this crushing failure that he has once again wandered down the same path of splitting his soul and he's died at Harry's hand or somebody's hand again. So over and over and over again this happens for him. And he's getting worse. He's not getting better. Because fundamentally they can't see they haven't figured out a way to address the core problem, because I have this magic can't directly, you know, like go and purify his soul kind of thing. So he's, um, the reason he's so afraid of death is actually, because what would be the canon Harry Potter events would be one of his later lives. The reason he's so obsessed with death is because even though he doesn't remember, he's carrying around this, this weight on his soul of this oppressive sense of failure every time he dies, that he has once again failed to save magic. So um, Snape volunteers to, because he knows he needs redemption too, um, he volunteers to go back and fix things, um, which would erase him from existing in the future. And so he goes back, and his idea is to you know, set Tom Riddle on the right path, give him a better childhood. And it's a redemption fix for both of them because Snape is very calculating about what he plans to do and he's going to intercept Merope before she has the baby and he's going to um, raise Tom Riddle as his son and raise him to be the future leader of the wizarding world and all that kind of stuff. And um, the redemption comes in in the sense that he has to purge the effects of the, the, the being conceived under a love potion from his core in order to... Um, Help him. So most of this is going to be like a Grindelwald era fic, um, and it will actually be Voldemort who defeats. Who won't be called Voldemort. He'll be, he'll be Thomas Prince at that point. Um, will be um, the defeater of Grindelwald, not Albus Dumbledore, and it will he he will basically take Dumbledore's place in the world, going forward, but it's redemption for them both because what they both get out of it. Snape is anticipating, you know, calculatingly. Um, Guiding Tom Riddle on the path to saving magic, and he winds up loving his son. And um, that it's through the bond that they forge as father and son that allows them to fix the future and save magic. So I plotted this whole thing out. It's going to be a monster, probably about 400,000 words. I've tried to find, figure out how to put it into two novels, but
0: it's not working so
2: far. So I'm figuring it out. How to find out. <clears throat> But anyways, one of my weirder ideas is that I'm going to go redeem Voldemort and Snape. <laughs> Let's take the two both irredeemable and put them redeeming each other.
0: Well, it's um, it's good in two ways, because um, it removes the single temptation in Snape's life that makes redemption um, pretty much impossible for him. And that's Lily. Yeah. Um, but by the time she's born, you know, Realistically, he wouldn't be alive. He won't be. Well,
2: he'll if, be, Snape will be, he'll probably actually may still be alive. I've kind of been toying with the idea of will because he, he'll be born, um, like maybe 1890-ish or so. He'll be about 30 years old when, when um, no, 35 years old, when, uh, Tom Riddle's born. So, um... He might still be alive when um um he might still be alive when uh, Lily's born, but he has no contact with her. I mean, he's 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 you know that's that should
0: which, but she would that, still that, be that, an infant, so she is yeah, in that, that temptation. That's, that's, okay. Yeah, that's Dumbledore that's, was born in eighteen eighty one, and he's a hundred and fifteen in, in ninety in nineteen ninety seven when he dies.
2: And one of the things that also was contributing to Tom's um, crazy in, in the story I'm writing is that uh, that I've plotted is um, that one of the things he's done is in several lives he's killed his soulmate. Um, and he doesn't do it in every life, but he does it in a lot of them. And, um, and it's just contributing to his – he doesn't know. He doesn't know that. It's one of the things he doesn't know. But Snape has figured it out. He's figured out who his soulmate is. Um that's one of the things that contributes to his completely utter nuttiness in those lives is the the lives where he kills his soulmates are the ones where he's the worst. Um, so there's a little bit of the soul magic that's going to come into the whole thing and I'm kind of, you know, fixing the whole soulmate thing.
0: I'm super curious. I want to ask like 10,000 questions, but... Here's a lesson in patience, you guys. I'm not asking them.
1: <laughs> it, was, it was it
2: was it was just it was one of those um, um, moments where I went, "Where the fuck did that plot bunny come from?" Um, and I couldn't even tell you what kind of triggered the whole. Um, Where the whole thought process came from. I kind of I had toyed with the idea of doing a um, Snape is Redeemed fic, and then I thought, you yeah, know, what I'm going to do is write a Voldemort is Redeemed fic. And the next thing I knew, I was like, oh, well, this is going to be odd. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'd thought about writing part of it or starting it as my November project. Um, mm-hmm. But I actually don't think this is – sometimes – this is one of those times like, sometimes I I plot a fic where I'm not sure it's one I want to write in public. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this is one of those ones where I'm not sure I want to write it in public.
0: (laughs) I have no idea what I'm doing for July or November. I thought I had an idea for July, but – I don't. Right now my
2: leading contender for July is still um but no no better idea has presented itself is the uh Steve Tony fix um around John McGarrett's funeral. So Hawaii five crossover thing. Um yeah, that's the mothership in case you were curious. That is my mothership. Um I have. It's funny because I've only. I think I only have one story actually finished with Steve Tony, which is tragic because I probably got like ten started, and there's one, at least ten that are started. Um, And so I feel like don't you suddenly wish
0: you had access to her Google Drive? Because I do. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean you got ten? I've only seen one. Oh my god! But no. Um. Yeah. Like. if I have a if if I have a second mothership outside of John Rodney, it is most definitely Steve Tony.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great pairing, and so I've I feel like I've written a lot of it in the last couple of years, but I just haven't finished any of it. So it's kind of like, oh, and I look at my site, and I go, I only have one Steve Tony story that's finished. That's really kind of tragic. I've written a couple of shorts. Um, the, some of the big shorts were um. We're we're Steve Tony, but um, um so so I guess there's technically more than one on my site. I think there's three.
0: I only have the one I have two no that's not true. I have a big short, and then I have my Sentinel one. I might have more than one big short. I have two that are Tony steve one's kind of pretty slash, and one is definitely all up in it.
2: all up in it. All up in it is good. Yeah. All so since we've it. got, like, five minutes, should we address the, uh, just give a teaser about what is an urban fantasy?
0: You want to? Or okay. we can do a show tomorrow for urban fantasy.
1: I... We can do a
0: tease now in our urban fantasy discussion show tomorrow. Or the okay. really, or honestly... We probably need to discuss July because <laughs> I'm getting nowhere fast. <laughs>
2: <clears throat> July, July. I will be at Garden of the Alexi tomorrow night, <clears throat> all life-having and stuff, but Lady Holder better be done having a life tomorrow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> For fuck's sake. I think, um, Claire, that you don't have to pick out a new fandom to write in. It um, just have to be a new project. I think that oftentimes people um, coming into Nano um, want to challenge themselves. And I'll be perfectly honest, I don't challenge myself in November. 50K is big enough challenge for anybody. And I'm saying that as someone who's literally written 175K in a single Nano. Um, 50K is enough challenge. You don't have to um, push yourself into a new fandom. You don't have to explore a new character. Um, just... Relax and concentrate on the word count, because um, otherwise you just stress yourself out. Because when you add a new fandom or a new character, plus the word count, plus the daily, you know, posting, it's just a little too much. That's just my opinion. Yeah.
2: I I um also I <laughs> in in terms <clears throat> of um there may be some things that um. I would consider anything Sentinel as urban, urban fantasy as long as you don't, it would be, you know, as, as long as you don't, uh, as long as the point of the story is more than the relationship.
0: Um, Yes, because the point of urban fantasy, the difference between urban fantasy and paranormal romance is that you can remove the romance from an urban fantasy and the plot will stand on its own. If your plot won't stand on its own without a romance between your characters, then you've written a paranormal romance. There's nothing wrong with that. I really enjoy paranormal romance, but that isn't the challenge. Um, urban fantasy, you can put werewolves, vampires... Which is into absolutely any fandom you want to and make it urban fantasy, you don't have to pick an urban fantasy fandom to write in you can make your you can make your most comfortable fandom urban fantasy
2: so you gotta pick a urban fantasy fandom or bring those elements into the fandom that isn't already <coughs> urban fantasy um, so you got the most
0: popular ones you see supernatural teen wolf um Harry potter uh. Vampire Diaries, Twilight. Is that um, um, Which is a why, but it can, but it can go urban fantasy if you do it right. Um, um, I would even Jackson. put almost human. I would I, I would I would even put almost human more in urban fantasy than I would science fiction.
2: Yeah, some of the sci fi stuff but definitely
1: skirts
0: the line. Yeah, right.
2: Because when you get into that whole the. the yeah, it's definitely it could definitely walk it could definitely walk the line on both jo- both genres of urban fantasy and sci-fi. Buffy is definitely urban fantasy.
0: Um, Angel is urban fantasy. Uh, there was somebody put up a list of urban fantasy TV tropes, and I had uh, on the post in Minion Headquarters, I believe. <laughs> We're done in ninety seconds, but I'm gonna go find this link for you guys and stick it in the chat room. And we can do a um a whole little it's not a million headquarters. We can do a whole podcast on this if you guys would like and discuss it if you have um questions.
2: It doesn't have to be a big and that's one of the things we can talk about is the degree of urban fantasy. It doesn't have to be a big over overarching you know, Anita Blake kind of vampires and werewolves walk among us kind of thing. It can be something more subtle, like, you know the Sentinel is actually a very subtle urban fantasy. Um so there's there's a lot of uh there's a lot of different ways you could go with it to find something you can work with.
0: Okay, we're down to thirty seconds. Um but we'll do another podcast tomorrow and talk about this. Um, and so, if you guys have questions, um, I'll set up a thread on the forum, and you can and you can ask them. And we'll try to talk about them tomorrow. Um, and uh, I'll catch you later. Say good night, Julie. Good night.
1: Shut, Shut up, up, up and sit down. down. And, uh, and, uh, oh, down.